The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I have this moment received word from the commander of Nacogdoches, who finds himself withdrawn to the Trinity River with part of his officers and troops. He reports that the Americans occupied Nacogdoches on the 11th, the place having been abandoned because of the superiority of the American forces. Thus, the dreaded day has arrived, in which I see the ominous standard of revolt unfurled in that part of the kingdom. Spanish Governor of Texas Manuel Salcedo to José Ramón Díaz de Bustamante, 17th of August, 1812. Given, as we've discussed in recent episodes, the United States at the end of 1812 had already declared war on Great Britain and was involved in a quasi-war against Spanish authorities in East Florida, one would think that folks wouldn't be eager to engage in yet another conflict. However, in this episode, we must discuss the Republican Army of the North, the first declaration of Texan independence, and the involvement of the Madison administration and federal officials. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Kenny Ryan from the Abridged Presidential Histories podcast for reading the intro quote for this episode. Kenny has been a supporter and friend of the podcast for years. And in addition to providing opening quotes, he's also been a guest on the Charles Lee and James Madison episodes of the Seat at the Table special series. We joke that his podcast, as the name suggests, is the antithesis of the Presidency's podcast and the deep dive I do, but that's really not the case. Kenny proves that brevity does not mean sacrificing insight, as in 60 minutes or less, he provides great knowledge about the lives and presidencies of each of the individuals who have served to date as chief executive. To supplement each episode, Kenny interviews authors and historians who provide perspective on certain key aspects of the president's career and legacy. I can't speak highly enough about Kenny's work. So if you just can't get enough of U.S. presidential history, and if you're listening to this, I assume you can't, be sure to check out Abridged Presidential Histories anywhere fine podcasts can be found. I'll also have a link on the sources page for this episode on my website. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I'm going to preface this episode with a caveat that I'm not going to be able to tell the complete story of this first Texas Revolution in the podcast, as there are many more details and nuances than are relevant for our understanding this in the context of U.S. presidential history. For more information, I will refer you to some of the sources that I used for this episode, including Donald E. Chipman and Harriet Denise Joseph's Spanish Texas 1519-1821 Revised Edition, Felix D. Almadez Jr.'s Tragic Cavalier, Governor Manuel Salcedo of Texas, 1808-1813, and Ted Schwartz's Forgotten Battlefield of the First Texas Revolution, The Battle of Medina, August 18, 1813. 
Just as I'm finding with the War of 1812 episodes as a whole, I had to carefully consider what to include and what would take us in another direction from the focus of the podcast. However, though this rarely gets mentioned in traditional accounts of the Madison presidency, just as with the Patriot War information I've included in recent episodes, I think it is important to discuss in the historical context as it helps us to understand just what all was happening with the administration and the nation as a whole at the time. We have discussed the tumultuous nature of the American borderlands in the early 19th century previously, and indeed, we saw a near conflict break out on the U.S. border with Spanish Tejas in 1806, as we discussed back in episode 3.33. Our old friend General James Wilkinson negotiated a deal to establish a neutral zone at the Sabine River between American and Spanish settlements, which preserved the peace for years. But this didn't stop some Americans from scheming to further their own interests, be they commercial or political, on the other side of the border. Particularly after the Hidalgo Rebellion in 1811, as discussed in episode 4.13, and with the overall instability in the Spanish colonial system in the midst of the Peninsular War on the Iberian Peninsula in Europe, Americans weren't just looking to the Floridas in the southeast as a potential route for expansion, but also southwest to Tejas and beyond. Indeed, after Father Hidalgo's execution, another priest, José María Moreros y Pavón, took up the revolutionary banner and challenged the authority of the vice-regal government of New Spain. With colonial authorities dealing with their own problems, this opened up an opportunity for ambitious individuals on the borderlands. Enter José Bernardo Gutiérrez de Lara. Gutiérrez and his brother had been involved in the Hidalgo Rebellion and provided aid to two of Hidalgo's chief supporters who had moved into the provinces of Cojilla, Nuevo León, and Nuevo Santander to stir up support against Spanish colonial authorities. The revolutionaries were also eyeing the borderland of Tejas and, in particular, its capital city, a town known as San Fernando de Beja, which would come to be known as San Antonio. A retired Spanish army captain had briefly overthrown the government there in January 1811, but he and his supporters were soon defeated, and the leader of this coup d'etat was promptly executed. While the rebels worked to retake Bejar from Spanish authorities, Gutierrez made his way across the border into the United States. He would find many Americans sympathetic with the revolutionary cause, including the United States Indian agent at Natchitoches, Dr. John Sibley. With their help, Gutierrez and an interpreter were dispatched east, and they arrived in Washington, D.C. on December 11, 1811. While at the American capital, Gutierrez met with President James Madison, Secretary of State James Monroe, Secretary of War William Eustis, and the Chief Clerk of the State Department John Graham, along with diplomats in Washington from Britain, Denmark, and Russia. Gutierrez would find the Secretary of State already on board with the idea of taking Tejas from New Spain, as he had advocated military action against that colonial province as early as 1805. Prior to Gutierrez departing from D.C., he received assurances from Monroe, quote, that in the event of war with Great Britain, the United States would immediately field an army of 50,000 men in New Spain, thus siding in the struggle for Mexican independence, and asked him to carry back to Mexico word of American support for the rebellion. From Washington, Gutierrez went north to Philadelphia in early 1812 and met with another leader who had, despite serving in the Spanish Cortez quite recently, joined up with the independence cause. 
Jose Alvarez de Toledo. The two men decided that Gutierrez would return to Mexico to be on the ground, while Toledo would remain on the east coast of the U.S. to keep tabs on the American government's response to the independence movement in New Spain. Gutierrez then proceeded by ship to New Orleans, where he arrived on March 23rd and proceeded to meet with the Orleans territorial governor and soon to be governor of the state of Louisiana, William C.C. Claiborne. Claiborne introduced him to a U.S. special agent, Captain William Shaler, who Schwarz speculates, quote, appears to have had secret orders to cooperate with Gutierrez. Shaler would join Gutierrez in heading back to Natchitoches in April 1812, and the two arrived to find, quote, the frontier village had become the scene of international intrigue and conspiracy, not unworthy of a European capital, as war between the U.S. and Great Britain loomed. It would be here that Gutierrez would come into contact with U.S. Army Lieutenant Augustus McGee. A West Point graduate, McGee had been assigned as part of a mission to clear out quote-unquote bandits from the zone who were increasingly looking to profit from trade between Tejas and American interests based in Natchitoches. However, as noted by Schwartz, quote, McGee's duty on the frontier, his contacts with the adventurers who frequented the borderlands, his dissatisfaction with the Army, and his feeling of personal slight in having been passed over for promotion, all turned McGee to a brave new dream, that of becoming the North American liberator of New Spain. Thus, on June 22, 1812, McGee resigned his army commission and started working to pull together a military force of his own, which would be dubbed the Republican Army of the North. On August 7th, an advance party from the Republican Army crossed the border into Tejas. Meanwhile, Gutierrez reached out to the commander of U.S. military forces in the area, someone who we've come to know quite well on this podcast. That's right, none other than General James Wilkinson, someone who was no stranger to plots and intrigues. Gutierrez hoped that Wilkinson would use his influence to further the revolutionary cause. Wilkinson did replace the commander of Fort Claiborne with one of his folks who turned a blind eye to the Republican Army of the North that was coming together in the Sabine River neutral zone and wrote Secretary of War Eustace back in Washington with, quote, a lengthy plan for preventing Great Britain from gaining control of the Spanish provinces. Before long, the Republican Army of the North was marching on Nagadoches, and the Spanish military forces in the area evaporated as, quote, all but about 10 soldiers deserted. Soon enough, the American filibustering force was making itself at home in what had been, quote, the Spanish bulwark against the threatening Americans. By September 13th, the force was up to, quote, about 300 Americans and nearly 100 Mexicans and Tejanos with three field pieces and started to make their way towards Trinidad with Bejar as their end goal. It seemed like the Gutierrez-Maguilla expedition might just succeed in taking Tejas from the Spanish. A month later, though, an agent would arrive in the Republican Army's camp from the American government who threatened to upend everything that had been achieved thus far. Over two months prior, Secretary of State James Monroe had charged Dr. John Hamilton Robinson to serve as a special diplomatic envoy to meet with Don Nemesio Saucedo y Saucedo, the Spanish Commandant General of the Interior Provinces based in Chihuahua. Just as had happened in East Florida, and as we discussed in episode 4.21, the reality of what war with Great Britain meant 
with the limited resources available to the Madison administration, had sunk in by this point. And Monroe, as well as the president, had realized that they needed to keep the peace in the southern borderlands while everything was so unsettled to the north along the border with Canada. Thus, Robinson had been charged with negotiating with Don Nemesio to express the Madison administration's, quote, concern with recent activities in the neutral ground who were disregarding the authority and endangering the welfare of both countries and, quote, establish commercial relations and settle their territorial boundary problems. McGee and others in the Republican Army quickly realized Robinson's purpose and only allowed him safe passage if he agreed to leave an American flag that he was prominently displaying on his baggage and, quote, that he take a passport from the newly declared Texas Republic. Rather than proceed directly to Bejar, the Republican Army instead decided to move on La Bahia, near modern-day Goliad, and they occupied it the evening of November 7, 1812. However, by this point, the Spanish colonial authorities had been able to gather their forces, and led by Governor Manuel Salcedo, they settled into a four-month siege of this, quote, large square stone fort that the Republican Army occupied. Both McGee and Gutierrez began to despair as the siege drug on. As noted by Schwartz, though, quote, many skirmishes occurred in which the Republicans were mostly victorious. Loyalist troops began to desert to the Republicans in increasing numbers, so that toward the end, it was the besiegers who weakened, their troops poorly clothed against the cold Texas winter, their powder chests empty, and their stores diminishing. On February 19, 1813, the Loyalist forces under Governor Saucedo ended the siege and retreated to Bejar. Right on their heels was the Republican Army of the North, at this point a force of 1,400. They would, however, find their forces diminished by one, for Augustus McGee passed away from what is presumed to be consumption on February 8th. Thus, Gutierrez turned to another American partner for command of the army, Samuel Kemper. Astute listeners of the podcast may find that name familiar, for Samuel Kemper and his brothers were involved in the abortive West Florida Rebellion of 1804, discussed back in episode 3.31, and his brother Reuben had played a role in the more successful West Florida Rebellion of 1811, as discussed in episode 4.13. While McGee had been a trained military officer, Kemper was described as, quote, an excellent executive officer, but of no education and of doubtful capacity for chief command. Thus, Gutierrez took more of a prominent role in the Republican Army, which was not necessarily to its benefit. Still, on March 29th, the Republican and Loyalist forces engaged in battle, quote, on the east side of Salado Creek, about five leagues from Bejar, in a battle typically dubbed the Battle of Rosillo, which, after an hour at most, ended in a decisive Republican victory. On April 1st, the Republican Army of the North marched on Bejar. And, after terms of surrender were agreed upon, Governor Saucedo, the governor of Nuevo Leon, who had come to offer support, and, quote, 12 others were made prisoners. Before long, quote, the green flag of the first Texas Republic was flying over Bejar. Here, however, is a key point where the revolution went wrong. Gutierrez and the leaders of the revolution guaranteed safe passage for Saucedo, his fellow governor, and other royalists, quote, to Matagorda Bay, there to board a vessel 
and sail to safety in the United States. However, six miles outside of Behar and close to the recent battlefield, the escort came to an abrupt and tragic end. As described by Schwarz, quote, the prisoners were dismounted, disrobed, and robbed of their valuables. Governor Salcedo's tongue was cut out. After being refused spiritual sacrament, they were beheaded with swords wetted on the soles of their executioner's boots. The bodies were left on the field, unburied. The military force assigned as their escort, who carried out the execution, returned to Behar in the morning, quote, and in a haughty manner, announced the brutal deed to the Republicans in the crowded military plaza. As noted by Schwartz, quote, the Native Republicans applauded, but the Americans were horror-stricken. They hurried to the site and interred the victims. Not only would this cause a rift in the Republican Army of the North, but it also, as described by Amarez, quote, shocked the bureaucracy of New Spain into planning an aggressive reconquest of Texas. We'll return back to the situation in a future episode, but for now, we need to catch up with what was happening on the northwestern front of the War of 1812 around the same time. In our last episode, we discussed how there was a back and forth about putting William Henry Harrison, governor of the Indiana Territory and major general of the Kentucky State Militia, formally in charge of the Northwestern Army. Though Harrison was a favorite of leading politicians in Kentucky and Ohio, his popularity was waning in the territory that he had governed for the past nearly 12 years, as well as with his fellow governors further west. As noted by historian David Curtis Skaggs, even before the surrender of Detroit and the subsequent raids and attacks carried out by Native peoples in the Old Northwest, as discussed in previous episodes, Illinois Territorial Governor Ninian Edwards and Missouri Territorial Governor Benjamin Howard were sending impassioned pleas to then-Secretary of War William Eustace in 1812 of their need for support and for more of the military focus to be on the far western settlements, as they were sitting ducks. When Harrison took charge of the Northwestern Army as its de facto commander, Eustace redirected the governors back to Harrison, reminding them that he, quote, commanded the troops in the 8th Military District and that they should communicate their desires through him and his staff. Edwards and Howard, however, knew that Harrison's focus was on operations in northwestern Ohio and the Detroit River region, with one of his primary goals being to take back Detroit. To the credit of Harrison, it wasn't that nothing was happening for the Far West. Indeed, after the loss of Detroit, Harrison realized that military forts in the Far West were likely targets. He also knew that resources, both in terms of manpower and supplies, were limited. And thus, he focused efforts on defending Fort Wayne, where Native forces had already launched a siege. On September 12th, forces sent by Harrison relieved the besieged garrison at Fort Wayne and were able to salvage that military outpost before Native forces under Tecumseh and British troops were able to set out to reinforce the siege. At the same time, Fort Harrison in what is now Terre Haute, Indiana, was attacked, and the 50 men there under the command of someone whose name you might want to remember, Captain Zachary Taylor, were able to successfully defend against the native force estimated to be at around 450 strong outside its walls, despite the fact that most, including Captain Taylor, were still recovering, quote, from a virulent fever. As noted by Taylor biographer K. Jack Bauer, quote, 
Taylor handled his defense with courage, firmness, and sense. It earned him strong commendation from Harrison and a brevet as major, the first honorary promotion awarded during the war. Fort Madison in the Missouri Territory in what is now modern-day Iowa was also attacked in early September, but the 200 Winnebago and Sac warriors that besieged it were unable to overcome the 40 enlisted men defending the fort. Again, from Skaggs, quote, For some Indians, these raids and the successful defense of Forts Harrison, Madison, and Wayne tempered their military optimism. In early October 1812, some Miami leaders came to Fort Wayne with the hope of securing peace. Though these peace talks would ultimately fail, it was at least taking the heat off so that Harrison could secure actual command of the Northwestern Army and plan an attack to retake Detroit before moving on into Canada. Harrison was also making a name for himself amongst his troops. Unlike other military commanders who were more formal in their uniform attire, as described by Skaggs, quote, the commanding general, Harrison, wore a calico hunting shirt trimmed with fringe and a beaver fur hat with a large ostrich feather. In other words, he looked like someone commanding troops on the frontier, and this endeared him to some of the folks under his command. Though on the surface he appeared to be an everyman, Harrison was in fact someone who had studied under General Anthony Wayne and who understood the complicated logistics of carrying on a military campaign in the Old Northwest much more than many of his contemporary commanders. Harrison realized that he had to plan two different strategies to combat two different threats. Again from Skaggs, quote, Against the natives, he employed the centuries-old tactic of raiding their villages, depriving them of homes, fields, and storage facilities, and consequently forcing them to sue for peace or to flee to British-held areas for sustenance. The second campaign involved a persisting strategy directed towards the recapture of Detroit and the taking of Fort Malden, elimination of the British Army in the region, and restoration of American government in Michigan Territory. He realized he was fighting a European force that had been reshaped in the long course of the Napoleonic Wars, as well as a native force that used more of what we might call today guerrilla tactics. Skaggs describes how native forces utilized raids, ambushes, and attacks on strategic military outposts to combat the encroachment of Euro-Americans in the late 18th and early 19th century. Under Wayne, Harrison had learned, quote, that warfare against the Native Americans was concluded successfully if one destroyed their villages and the nearby fields of corn and vegetables. Far more important than achieving a tactical military victory, Wayne needed to make the natives dependent on American annuities for their subsistence. Further, against the British, it was quickly becoming apparent in this conflict that those commanders with experience in the Revolutionary War were ill-equipped to take on the demands of Napoleonic-era warfare. New tactics and strategies would be needed in order to win the day. This would be particularly important for retaking Detroit since, on a map, the simplest route looked to be to go through the Maumee River Valley in northwest Ohio. The problem, however, as discussed in episode 4.20, was that there was a strong native force in the area that could cut the supply lines even if a force could make it through there. 
The geography was also not conducive for the military as it cut through the Black Swamp, and that was, to that point, the only land route to Detroit. Traditional methods were not going to work. Again, from Skaggs, quote, In his earliest 1812 planning, Harrison never sought naval assets in the quest for military dominance of the Old Northwest. In the summer and fall of 1812, he concentrated on the retaking of Detroit without naval assistance. Only gradually did Harrison envision naval superiority on Lake Erie as a requirement for the reconquest of Detroit. However he did it, Harrison knew that he had to launch operations against Detroit as soon as possible. But it quickly became clear that, for it to be a success, many details would have to be worked out, and his timetable expanded from weeks to months. Harrison's main problem was that, quote, he had more soldiers than his logistical system could accommodate. But this reflected less on the number of men under his command than the challenge presented to get proper supplies. Skaggs notes that, quote, contractors' inabilities to supply his troops drove Harrison to distraction. Rather than being able to train his men, Harrison was at times preoccupied with trying to get them supplies. Indeed, when he did find himself in need of more manpower in his force, Harrison would find himself challenged on that front as well. Again from Skaggs, quote, Harrison knew that service in the 8th Military District was not considered as career-rewarding as that in the 9th Military District to the Northeast, where most regulars thought the most career-enhancing assignments lay. Because of all of this, it took time to move the forces of the Northwest Army into place, and the soldiers waiting for action as the days of fall drew ever fewer and the winter neared, continued to consume supplies. It also didn't help that Harrison had an internal dispute forming. As discussed last episode, though Brigadier General James Winchester had originally acquiesced to being supplanted by Harrison in the chain of command, despite the fact that Harrison took command of the military force of the West, commissioned as a militia general, while Winchester was regular army, at some point, Winchester had a bit of a rethink. Why again was this major general of the Kentucky militia leading things again? The relations between the two soured to the point that, as noted by Skaggs, quote, throughout December and early January, Winchester deliberately avoided keeping Harrison informed of his position and his intentions. In the midst of all of this, the pressure was increasing from Washington for Harrison to do something. The new acting Secretary of War, James Monroe, wrote to Harrison on December 26th, reminding him that, quote, the object of your expedition was to retake Detroit, to take Fort Malden with the adjacent country, and to hold them. While acknowledging all the difficulties that Harrison was facing in terms of securing supplies and the challenges posed by winter weather, as well as the little matter of, quote, the threatened exhaustion of the public treasury, Monroe was clear in laying out the expectation that action was demanded from Harrison. Before the general could finalize his plans, however, Winchester decided to act. Despite direct orders from Harrison to, quote, remain at the Maumee Rapids until Harrison arrived with his forces, General Winchester consulted with his colonels about a message received from a settlement then called Frenchtown, 
modern-day Monroe, Michigan. The settlement had been taken over by a detachment of British soldiers as, quote, a guard post designed to provide early warning of any American approach, and their native allies, quote, roamed the countryside around the community. Winchester and his officers decided that enough was enough, and they were going to march on Frenchtown to free it from the British and native forces. Again from Skaggs, quote, How much this reflected his, i.e. Winchester's, chagrin that Harrison, rather than he, commanded the Northwest Army, and how much this decision reflected Winchester's personal desire and the ambition of his colonels for military glory will remain unknown. Winchester claimed it was done for humanitarian reasons. Whatever the reason or reasons, the decision proved costly. Winchester's troops quickly dislodged the British and native forces, and he wrote to Harrison that, quote, he intended to hold Frenchtown and requested that Harrison send additional soldiers to support his command. However, when British Colonel Henry Proctor learned of the defeat at Frenchtown, he decided to launch a counterattack because Proctor understood a reality that Winchester was aware of but ignored in a flare of bravado. Winchester, while bragging that he would meet whatever force came upon them, also acknowledged that their strategic position was, quote, not very favorable for defense and would not convenient, but it is my only alternative unless I abandon the protection of the village. Skaggs does remark that, quote, in all probability, in colder weather than most of the men had ever seen, the troops were more concerned about getting firewood than building protection from a seemingly improbable attack. All the same, when the combined British and native force of 1,200 marched on Winchester's force the morning of January 21, 1813, they would find the Americans completely unprepared as sentries had not been posted to watch out for enemies. Thus, 40% of the American force under Winchester's command was destroyed, with 220 killed outright, 150 captured by the native forces, and only 33 escaped. One of those captured was Winchester himself, who, as noted by historian John Sugden, was, quote, stripped to his nightshirt and brought to Wyandotte commander Roundhead. Proctor persuaded him, i.e. Winchester, to surrender the remainder of his troops, who still defiantly held their ground behind the bruised pickets. As Proctor feared that American reinforcements would soon arrive and counterattack, he pulled out his troops, though he gave assurances for the safety of the 80 or so sick and wounded American prisoners that he left back at Frenchtown. Though Harrison and his force had arrived at the Maumee Rapids, Winchester's previous position, the day prior, when they learned of the British counterattack, they halted their advance. Meanwhile, at some point in the night, where January 22nd turned into January 23rd, quote, the British Indian Agency interpreters departed from Frenchtown, while 50 inebriated native peoples descended on the wounded Americans. As described by Sugden, they, quote, hauled injured men from houses and brutally dispatched them, leaving some of their bodies out on the street. The successful counterattack at Frenchtown would reinvigorate the allied British and native troops but for Americans, it became a rallying cry. 
Remember the Raisin would become a call to battle for U.S. troops moving forward to remember this atrocity committed against the wounded American troops in what would come to be known as the River Raisin Massacre, as Frenchtown was on the River Raisin. Before we get too far into this battle cry being raised in the 1813 military campaigns, however, we're going to stop here for this episode. And next episode, we'll jump around to a couple of points on the globe to see some more impacts of the declaration of war, as well as catch up with affairs in Europe and some of the diplomats posted abroad in an episode I'd like to call The Westward Retreat. Thanks so much again to Kenny Ryan for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out Abridged Presidential Histories wherever you get your podcast. Special thanks also to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Christian's services for your podcast, check out his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. Special thanks also to the folks at the Colonial Music Institute at George Washington's Mount Vernon, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from Hull's Victory as performed by David and Ginger Hildebrand for our intro and outro music. You can find out more about the great work that the Colonial Music Institute is doing to research and share information about early American music and dance by going to mountvernon.org and typing in Colonial Music Institute in the search field. Links to the websites for all these folks, as well as sources used for this episode, past episodes of the podcast, links to more information about all the U.S. presidents, and much more can be found at the website, which is presidencyspodcast.com. There, you can also find ways that you can help support this podcast, including, but not limited to, becoming a patron of the podcast. Our patrons help to offset the cost of producing this podcast, so I cannot thank them enough. Just go to patreon.com slash presidencies and sign up. If you'd like to reach out to me, please feel free to send me an email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. I'm also available on social media. I'm on Mastodon, Post, and Facebook as Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram and Threads at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word. Last, but certainly not least, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. We've still got much more to come in our journey through the history of the Madison presidency, and I hope you are as excited as I am to see where the path ahead leads. Until next time. Stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.